I've never seen anything like this in history. And I don't want to be totally pessimistic. I just think now more than ever, we need to have the parallel system. We need to make it real. We need to give it life. We need to breathe life into it. I see so many people, they know it. And even if they don't know it now, slowly as things unfold, they're going to see intuitively the need to create their own garden or they see the economy disintegrating. All, everything they thought was stable is becoming unstable. But having your own land is sort of the key to freedom and independence, I think, in a lot of ways. Buenos dias. Welcome, 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 welcome to Eco Village Library. I am your host, Christopher Kinney, and in this podcast, we discuss all things relating to building the new life, new society, however you want to look at it. We cover it all here, whether that's dealing with social elements of living sustainably or the ecological components or even the economic components. And in this episode in particular, we get down and dirty with the economic dimensions of eco-village development and eco-village living. And this episode is quite unique. I'm bringing on a guest who originally reached out to me a couple weeks ago with a bunch of incredible ideas and brainstorming about how can we transition on a mass scale towards a reality of eco-villages, of just living in sustainable communities while looking at the economic dimensions of our paradigm. So for an example, in this episode, we talk about our currencies or banking institutions or the economic state of the world and the opportunities within it. Jeff also brings to light in this episode some very interesting historical insights, such as Plato's Republic or Jesse Jones during the area of the uh, Great Depression and Reconstruction, you know, during the 30s. And it's an interesting conversation. It's the longest podcast I've done so far. Oh, and please, please, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to on. It helps the show quite a bit and would greatly appreciate that. Also, got a new website up and running. It's very basic for now, but it's it's a start, and it's ecovillagelibrary.org. It'll be the start of something new, the growth of this platform, and so I'm really excited about it. So uh, meet me on over there, get subscribed, and just be part of this journey with me. And one more thing, too. This episode is a collaboration of ideas and reflections, and I highly, highly encourage you to comment on this one or send me a message through email or whatever platform to let me know what you think. What are your ideas? Let me know if you agree, do you disagree? What resonates with you? You know, if you want to bring something to the table, you're by all welcome to do so and maybe even come on the show too. Well, I hope you enjoy this conversation and um, all right, we'll get into it. Underway! All right, well, Jeff McGregor, you've originally reached out to me suggesting ideas on how to transition into 
you know, I guess I could say an eco-village economy. I thought they were extremely fascinating, very interesting. And you seem to have a very solid grasp on just key economic concepts. Anywho, I just thought this would be a perfect podcast just to talk about these ideas and just open up this discussion to the public and see whoever else wants to chime in and throw in their ideas as well. Because as you know, with this whole effort, with this whole movement towards you know, creating a uh, more sustainable world, ecological world, you know, we got to start talking about these ideas in public and just see what's the best we could come up with. So anyway, uh, welcome to the show and happy to have you on here. Wow. Yeah, it's great. Uh, this is my first podcast and I've, I've been sitting on a lot of information, sort of unique information that I feel a little bit guilty that I haven't been able to share it. And writing can be very uh, difficult sometimes or um, time consuming. And sometimes the free flow of just talking and talking with somebody is the best way for me to get ideas out. And so I'm really glad you're doing your podcast. And I was searching around and I came across your podcast. That's how we're connecting. And I was really fascinated with the tone and the topics, the way you were addressing those uh, with the economic issues and realizing there's this really important problem to solve with these eco villages or intentional communities or anybody who's trying to live a more independent uh, life and, and have more meaning and have more morality or more justice in terms of what they're doing with their hands or what they're doing to make money. This is the challenge is how, how can we, you have to almost think about breaking free from the system of the money system, or you have to figure out how to cooperate with people. And I see so many people wanting to do this, and I just don't see a lot of good examples. And it's like, I think a lot of heads need to come together to try to figure out how to make it work, how to make things work on a much, unsafe, I don't want to say grand level, but on a level where a lot more people can live and work and feel good about their life and what they're contributing. 100%. And I know now is just seems to be the perfect time to really put our heads together on this because you know, as we could see now, we're going through some uh, shaky times, some uncertain times, and especially within the economic paradigm in which we're living, the foundations seem to be a little bit shaky. So, uh, so how do we get from here to there? That's, that's my biggest question. And I know the powers that be or what's been running this world for this past century, at least, are some very, very powerful forces, but also too, you know, there is possibilities of moving into a completely different paradigm. So, just the biggest question is just what's that transition going to be like? What's it going to look like? And how can we do it? No, that's great. You, you're right. Just sometimes being able to ask the question like you just asked it is exactly what we need to do. It's like identifying the problem and then asking the question gives us, puts us in this position where our mind starts thinking about the problem, starts trying to work it out. Um, sometimes I believe with any major problem, that's, the, that's what you got to start off doing. Ask the question the right way and see if your brain or the combination of other people's brains working together collaboratively can bring about a solution. So I have a unique, I'll, I'll just put a little outline out for you right now for the listeners of what I think would be important to look at. Um, and I kind of take ideas from right, left, from recent history. Um, I've been pulling some things from ancient history recently. I went all the way back to Plato's Republic. And that's, so that's, I mentioned some of that stuff to you. And um, 
I would mention a couple, I'll say, those are some of the things I'd like to talk about. Like one, I would like to talk a little bit about what we could learn from Plato's Republic. There's like a little chapter, chapter two, which talks about how to set up a small nation state, which we might be able to call that like an eco village. And Plato's, this dialogue, Plato starts talking about how, how do we, what will we need to set this up? What, what would be the wrong way? What would be the efficient way? And they use logic and reason to sort of come up with some things I think are still pretty applicable, um, things that have been tested and gone through uh, the centuries and proven themselves. And the other things, uh, which we can get into later, more modern. I can mention a few things first from Plato's Republic, examples that I think would be helpful in, in trying to make this new economy or an eco-village economy. Please, yes, let's dive right into it. So I haven't read all of this Plato's Republic book, so that's um, first admission. So I just have been scanning materials, looking for ideas that are relevant to money, finance, setting up an economy. And in Plato's Republic, he talks about one of the most important lessons I think that we could use today is the importance of division of labor and that and how hard it is and how unreasonable it is, or if you want to use a logic, illogical, it would be to try to have everybody doing the same, doing everything themselves, everybody growing their own food, making their own shoes, building their own house. Mm -hmm. And he goes through some dialogue with the various people in his group. Most of his writings are like that, where they're, they're trying to figure out what the truth is or what's the best way to do something. And so this just becomes a really inefficient way to do things, to do everything yourself. And so in setting up a republic, I'm going to use the word republic, but you could substitute eco-village. It's important that you have the ability for people to focus in and do something really well and do a lot of it, and then to be able to trade with one another, with, other, with the other people who are doing different things. And part if you if you think through this whole thing and, and rationalize the whole process, what you find is if everybody's trying to do everything themselves, then you get into a situation where um, you don't do a very superior job or you can't you don't have enough of the tools or it's it's inefficient economically, financially. So you have poor you end up being poor, you end up being frustrated if you're trying to do everything yourself. If you can get make a division of labor situation work, people can be more wealthy, they can be more prosperous, they can have less stress, they can make higher quality things, whatever they're making, whether they're growing food or making clothes or doing tech work, for instance, mm -hmm. that, whatever it is. The biggest temptation for a lot of us, and I've been guilty of this plenty of times, is just saying, man, this whole thing's all fucked up. I just want to do it all myself, you know, learn everything myself, do everything myself, and kind of just be a lone wolf going out and, and mm -hmm. ditching the system behind. But as you're bringing up, it's very important to capitalize on your strengths and team up with those who complement your strengths with, uh, you know, where you may be weak at, because we're all very unique individuals. None, none of us is the same, just like everywhere in nature, you know, we could be of the same species, but every single individual being is unique in its own way. And um, it's a very important thing to realize. So yeah, I mean, please continue. This is good stuff. Yeah. So, so even socially, it's important to have that kind of diversity as like, as you're, that's what I'm getting from what you just said. And with the flow of ideas. I mean, there's, there's an importance of art. There's the importance of culture. And when you're trying to create a community, there's a certain scale you need to have 
to have the culture or to have the the true uh, the true, the truest level of freedom you can have. And I don't know what that number of people is. I read in one of the articles you sent me some, some people who had scaled up a intentional community to like 200 people and they had a pretty diverse economy. I can't remember the name of it, but these are sort of some of the, some of the boundary conditions you're working in when you start with just a few people versus and having that kind of an economy with three or three or four people versus having 200. When you have mm-hmm. 200 people, all of a sudden you, you go into another category, another level, another phase of possibility because you have so many needs could be being met in the society. You have like a surplus almost, a surplus labor or surplus energy to work with in the community for those people to do you know, something like, say an intentional community may want to create a, a company to build stuff and to trade outside the community purely for becoming having more luxury needs or having more wealth or having more prosperity for themselves. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dunbar's number with the, um, you know, some anthropologist, I think he was, did a very in-depth study of this. What's the optimal number of people to be living in any given community or what are like our brains are evolved to be at its optimum with, in other words. And from that study, you know, I got to look up the exact study or the exact research he's done, but I know it's, it was determined that to a maximum of 250 people, I think it was the sweet spot of what we were evolved to be around was about a community of a maximum 250 people and a minimum of, I think it was 50 or 100. I got to double check this. You know, uh, very smart people have really dug into that, to that sweet spot number. I, w- I would kind of agree with that number. I have no, no way of measuring that or accounting for it, but the difficulty in aiming for a higher number and, or trying to change a whole city or trying to do something on a state level is you get nowhere. You put all this energy in and nothing happens. If you start small enough, you can actually get people involved. You can get momentum. You can start bringing people together, acquiring land, acquiring resources. And I think that's a good thing to bring up. It's just the point of how many people you need. So I'll take that back again. I kind of got off the Plato's Republic. So Plato talks about this too. And in Plato's Republic concept, he thinks of the community as you start growing, getting more and more people who are doing the very meeting the various needs of the people, whether it's the construction people, the farmers, the tradesmen. I think he called them husbandmen. That's what they in this in this translation of the Greek. Huh, interesting. Um, the, far, the farmers. So once you have enough of these people doing these things, you reach a certain level of where you're satisfying your own needs. This is like the, maybe the first goal to get to. How do we get to the point where, say, in our modern day, we want to meet our food needs, our energy needs, our housing needs? There's sort of an implicit goal where you want to try to meet all your needs and not be dependent on the outside system. That's sort of in our modern day, what we're trying to avoid, I think, with, with most efforts to do intentional community. But you can, if you can reach that level, then you can transition into something, this next level. And, and Plato calls this, this level where you're, you're producing more than you consume. The community is actually a net producer. It's taking care of its needs and then some. It's got excess. And what can you do with the excess at that point? He believes that the goal of the economy is first to take care of the community of the nation state, the republic, whatever you call it. And creating more after the fact is for just for trading around with other communities or other nations to get the things that you don't make, to get things that have materials or processing techniques or 
maybe it's animals, skins, or <laughs> it's something that you just don't have locally that somebody else has. So in, in Plato's Republic, they have, uh, he thinks there should be people who are appointed to do the trade for the community. People who will get appointed and their only job is to take surplus, surplus things that are produced that the community doesn't need to survive and go around and trade things to bring other things to the community that they want but don't have. Well, yeah, you know, and that's, I guess you could say that where the concept of uh, money and coins have kind of stepped into, I would guess, you know, where we have that surplus, but let's say that surplus is tomatoes. They rot within a day. So how can you maintain that well, or you, you know what I mean? Or how can you just store that value of surplus that you produced or, or a way of trading? And, and I know where, um, you know, that develops into all those economic systems up until the point we have today, but going back down into this point. We have, exa I'm going to give you some examples from the, the Jesse Jones book, which how he took how he went into the supply chains, agriculture supply chains, transportation supply chains, that everything that broke down in the Great Depression, and he went into it with loans, and actually nothing went to waste. When Jones and his organization, his corporation, went into the U.S. economy, they, to a large degree, bought up everything that was surplus or that was underpriced and the farmers were losing on. They gave the farmers a, a, a parity price and that was at least equal to what they had to put in to, to make their, their farm work, to pay their bills. And they set like a foundation and that foundation stabilized the market. They didn't try to give people the full price or the full market share. It's like they would give people a loan, a guarantee of like nine, 90% or nine cents or 90 cents on the dollar. And he went around and, and, and they fixed most of the U S economy on that, on that, with that type of method. And it took, it did take a few years to be honest, but there were stories. There was a, there was a competing group of people in the Roosevelt administration. I'm jumping around in timeframes here. No and worries. those, and that, those people, and one of the, the main guys, Henry Wallace was this big agriculture guy. He was very progressive, very popular, but he got into this notion of burning crops, destroying livestock to try to bring the prices up. And it was absolutely, we see this today. We see people dumping food, dumping, <laughs> killing livestock excess. And we're going, what the heck is wrong with these people? Uh, yeah, just like what they do with the chickens, like some crazy number of like meat and whatever due to this whole situation, they had to just butcher all these animals without going to any, um, to anybody, just a waste. Yeah. So this, this, what's happening now the only thing in U.S. history, this has not happened since the Great Depression, that like on this scale where we saw these things happen, supply chains break down, food being destroyed. So in terms of money, the, there was very little discussion in Plato's Republic, except that there ought to be a, a unit, a system of unit of exchange. So he gave very little thought to that or very little explanation, at least in chapter two. And I don't think he went on about it much else. He went on for the need for the, the community the village to have to have a marketplace because when you have these people who are specializing in making shoes or making growing food or bringing their the meats from the from agriculture work to the to the buyers it's so inefficient for those people to have to set up a store and try to sell their stuff it's it he he already in that time he was thinking about efficiencies and inefficiencies 
and that there ought to be a need for somebody who specializes in taking all the surplus from the community and sort of being a middleman, selling people's stuff on their behalf. So the farmer doesn't have to sit in a market all day. So mm -hmm. the farmer can take his stuff there. Then he can go home and somebody else can take over the work of selling the farmer stuff or selling the craftsman stuff. And, and this concept of having stores and having retailers, this is something that Plato was talking about. And this is another important thing to think about because when you're starting an eco-village, there's, there's an economy that's based on people's time, it's based on their energy, and it's based on money to some degree, to the degree that it's scarce and, and people depend on a scarce resource that they don't control. So all these concepts are there. I, and they also talk about the need for there to be guardians. So in Plato's Republic, it's just kind of instinctive. Every community, every tribe, every whatever you want to, every civilization that's ever existed has had a warrior class or a guardian class that defends people, defends the city, defends the community. So those are the things I think I just wanted, that I thought were important to pull out in terms of setting up a community. Yeah, 100%. And like you said before, the bartering way of doing things is just entirely inefficient. You know, it's, it, it's, it's needed to have some sort of unit of exchange. And I know recent times, especially now, you know, a lot of people are taking the term money as a dirty word, but it's, it's just kind of a natural system that's developed as, as we could see here in Plato's Republic. You know, it's, just, it's a necessity just to be able to do exactly what you've described. Now we know that our current situation, we're use, utilizing currency notes that are, you know, printed someplace far away and we don't understand the mechanics behind it. And then all these complicated terms that, you know, the majority of people just simply don't understand. And, but we're yet again, we, you know, we work for it. We spend our entire lives working for it, using it. So the discussion I'm very interested in is, okay, this is the current paradigm, but you know, for an eco-village paradigm, what will the units of exchange look like in that situation? And why is it necessary for this unit of exchange to be perhaps something different from this, uh, this common currency note that we all depend on today? Or in other words, the US dollar or whatever currency, you know, fill in the blank. That's a great question. So if, I, if you will, I'll give you my perspectives from the, all these sources that I've looked at about, in terms of how to inform that solution. In the modern day, we have these currencies, we don't control them, we don't understand them, we just know we need them, right? Everybody knows they need it to do this, to buy that, to buy the house, to go to the bank. But people really don't know how these systems evolve. They don't know their history. They don't really know who's in control. And nobody's ever going to take the time to individually have to figure all that out before they decide to get a loan or to transact in the currency. It's, and that's probably one of the problems of why it's so hard to change this is because if it requires people to learn all so much then they don't have time to let to do the things they need to do in their life so people are bound up in that and so we, it's important to come up with a solution that doesn't require that of people doesn't require them to to become a world historian about the history of money and the rise and fall of countries and the, all the evils of this money system or that money system but still it's going to take somebody some few people like you and me to look at all this history, look at all this experience and try to filter it and to try to pull out the, the, the wisdom and the solutions and the, the working examples. So I, I have been thinking about this and since our first discussion and the articles you sent me, I read those, I was quite inspired with some new ideas that I think 
can help people in the present. So if we're talking about the present, there's one thing I want to mention first, just if anybody wants to know if the history themselves, and I'm not, I don't feel like I want to spend the time talking about it on this podcast with you. There's a couple, like there's a video this guy, Bill, still made uh, called Money Masters. It was pretty comprehensive about the evolution of money. I think he went back as far as the Roman Empire times and tried to go through examples of what was used as money, how loans were done, the histories of gold, paper money, all that. That was pretty good overview. It's pretty old movie. I think it was done in the 80s. That's, that's just a reference point. And where we are today, we have, these, we have these currencies that we have to work with. So I think that we have to, de- we have to just accept it. And, um, and I can, I, I'm really been thinking more about what, in terms of what would be useful in the United States. I don't have enough experience with the rest of the world like you do in terms of what might work there. But in terms of what would be good here, it depends on the scale, on, the, on, the, on a larger scale. If people could actually get their county on board, most counties in the United States have big reserves, operating budgets, and they just keep it in a bank. They keep it usually in one of the most, in a bank they shouldn't, that we, we would disapprove of. It's many of the banks that say went bankrupt, the big large ones that are more tied into globalism, more tied into making loans around the world and selling people's mortgages around the world. Ultimately it's, tied with these central banks and to just what's going on, what the central banks are doing. Yeah, I think the interest and the business activities of most of the five or six biggest, largest banks in the United States, they're mostly disconnected, decoupled from the bet, what's going on in the United States for, to a large degree. So no, when they prosper, that doesn't mean America's prospering. It doesn't mean Americans are prospering because they're too disconnected from the American economy. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think one of the, the biggest sources of deposits for these big banks is our counties and our cities. And this is where I have to take issue with the people being part of the problem and, and how that easily they could be part of the solution. If they could go to their cities and go to their, even at their county levels and force those deposits to be put in local banks or credit unions that have loan programs for that community, they could be taking their power back. And this would not be that hard. It, it would be very doable if enough people, and I think we're in this environment now where people are looking for what to do. So that's a little bit of the bigger level of course, instead of setting up an eco-village. But I think that could be very important to setting up an eco-village because I think having loan programs established for these in communities like that with the existing currency, I think that's going to help people get land, keep land. It's going to provide a certain economic safety net or platform to launch ourselves, to launch new economic systems or eco-villages. So if that's possible, I think people need to take advantage of that and try to do it. Um, and there is another way, another option, which is to try to set up a bank. Uh, Ellen Brown talks about this, uh, community banks, not community banks, but public banks. The state of North Dakota has a bank. They're a very small state, but they have, a, they have something called Bank of North Dakota. And Bank of North Dakota is totally solvent. They have loan programs for disasters, for farming, for, to help kids go to college. And those programs just put the money out there. And smaller banks, those people don't apply for those loans. What people do is they go to a, their community bank and they say, I want to get a loan for college or I want to get a loan for my farm. And Bank of North Dakota puts up the majority of the money for the loan. 
the local bank puts up maybe 10 or 20%, but Bank of North Dakota puts up like 80%. Mm. So having that kind of institution serving the community with the existing currency should not be discounted. It, you should not just write that off. And I, I wish we would do that. I wish a lot of counties in the United States work at the county and the city level. I wish people would do that. I think we'll find in almost every city and county, it's, this, it's a situation that's open to change where somebody's put the money in a big bank and the money's not serving the needs of the community. And uh, that's, I mean, it's the people's money. So right. um, that's just something that another one thing I think people could do. It's important. So would it be safe to say to like kind of similar to the uh, local foods movement or just buy a local in respect to uh, farmers markets and food? Would it be safe to say to say the same thing about currency? Like, you know, create local or stay local, even eventually maybe perhaps even branch off later down the road into locally specific currencies, having a diverse pool of currencies together, yeah. not just operating I, under one umbrella. Right. And I absolutely agree. We, we need an alternative currency system. We need a new unit of exchange. I only say that, that it's important to make as much use of the currency that you're living under as possible because I think in the eco, as we're talking about how to set these up and how people can really make them work and not fail, because I wanted things to succeed and people don't want to put all their energy in and fail. They're going to need to have two currencies. They won't be able to just start off with their own community currency or their own eco village currency. They'll have to utilize both the currency of their country, of their region, whatever it is, and their new currency that they're creating. So that's just something I would say. It just, something that you can do to prepare to make yourselves have a better chance of success is to have access to loans or access to help yourself acquire land in the currency that's that governs that nation at that moment right so in terms of setting up i one of the things i've seen a lot of and i've been i've been looking at this probably for 20 years i looked at it a lot in uh say the early 2000s and i came across the let's model i came across bernard Lettier. One of his articles is in this guy in economics book, Bernard Lettier and um, Ithaca Hours. I looked at all these systems. I looked at barter systems and I just saw that nothing really was doing the job. And a lot of it, um, so I, I, I don't want to put them down. People were trying things. So I'm trying to think, so I tried to think of what, what could help make a currency grow. Or I think it's important to put in the, the creating the currency and, and putting it in the context of creating the village or creating the new sustainable way of life. I think it's hard to separate those two things. I think that's the whole basis for why you need the currency is because you can't do your economics right now in the current system with the existing currency. You can't prosper and do the right thing and do the, do the, a uh, sustainable thing or the environmentally correct thing. You can't do any, it's very difficult to do these things with the current. The currency is a big part of the problem. So part of the solution does involve having a new currency that is controlled properly, that has, that's sustainable. That's, it's almost like a, I try, I, I don't know what the metaphor is, but maybe it's more like a leak on a boat. It's like you got this boat and if you're using the existing currency only, your wealth is constantly leaking out of the boat. <laughs> Uh, or, or I don't know if that's the right way to put it. I think so. I mean, it's the inflation rate of the dollar or any kind of currency you note know, over time. It all eventually, the value of all currencies eventually goes to zero at one point or another. So I think that's a very real metaphor to use. 
maybe not the right one, but it's like your whatever you're producing is getting stolen from you. Your your livelihood, your work. If you're using this currency, there's layer upon layer of middlemen in the system of this currency extracting it. It's being uh, what has just happened. I think this may be a little bit important. Um, what has just happened again in the last say four or five months is all the big banks and all the financial craziness that goes on in Wall Street and internationally, it seems to have gone bankrupt again, which is not a surprise. 10 years later, like it, went, it all happened in 2009, all these trillion, trillions of dollars, I think it was seven, eight, nine trillion dollars was used just to bail out the biggest banks, mostly in New York, and the biggest companies, mostly in New York. Are you talking about now or two? No, I think it's happened again. I think it happened it in happened 2009 again. and then they got bailed out and they got all this basically interest-free money. And I think maybe they did pay it back to some degree, but it was interest-free and they could just go buy bonds from government bonds and, and make interest on it. It's like for doing nothing. It's like I could have done that. You could have given me $7 trillion. I could have gone and bought a bunch of government bonds and I could have made mm-hmm. how many hundreds of billions in interest too. Yeah. But why, why do we give this to these banks? And so there's all these people who are sort of in the system and uh, all these hands taking. And, and, if, and the way they can take from you is through the money system by participating in it. And so we've seen new currencies come about. We've seen efforts to make digital currencies like the Bitcoin or other ones. So people are moving in this direction. People understand it and people have been working on the problem. But I'm only saying as an analogy of why, why do you need a new currency? Well, it's what's going to, ha- what I think is going to happen again is something now is what happened in the great depression, which try almost happened in the great depression, which was once the banks get bailed out, once there's this finance, we've, we've been through a financial crisis just now. We don't, we haven't really felt it yet, but the banks are going to start tightening up credit. They're going to stop making the loans. They're going to stop lending to people. They're going to see this market as uncertain. There's, we have massive unemployment right now, but the full, the full realization of what that means hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen over the next few months. And what happened in the Great Depression is banks stopped loaning. They, they, not only did they stop loaning to people, they tried to start foreclosing on people. And then all that while the supply chains are breaking down and there's a lack of food, it, it just, it, it, the whole system just descended into disintegration. And the, and the importance of the Jesse Jones story is if it wasn't for him, if this guy and using all of his contacts in Congress and all his business connections around the country, if he didn't pull together sort of an army of people to work against what, what the banks and the Wall Street uh, crowd in New York was doing, we would have lost, this whole country would have been lost. In the and, who's Jesse, and who's Jesse Jones? So Jesse Jones was a... In, in that day, he was the equivalent of a billionaire. He was the, probably the wealthiest man in the South, and he's from Texas. He made his money not in oil, but in lumber and in the, the booming oil market, there was a great demand for lumber. And he, and he just came in without a college education, not even a high school education. He inherited a lumber mill that belonged to a relative. He grew that, he expanded the business, and then he branched out into banking and building houses. He, I think he sort of started a bank in order to be able to mass produce houses for people. So he was kind of like a Henry Ford in some ways. He was trying, he was 
trying to service an economy where there was people who could afford things, people who were buying houses, for instance, lots of people. He wasn't just trying to build for the wealthy, for instance. And that was the same with Ford. So there was a few billionaire type of people like Jesse Jones and Ford. And there was another guy named Westinghouse. Everybody's heard the name Westinghouse, but they don't know. This guy was a hundred percent inventor. He was the guy who eventually hired Tesla and a lot of Tesla's ideas were put into working uh, into product, building products through Westinghouse and Westinghouse became this huge, huge company. Um, and they built a whole city for their people, for their workers. They built schools, they built um, just about everything their workers needed. They had, they had a nice life. Uh, Henry Ford um, established the eight hour workday. It was not really unions that did that necessarily. Really? No, it was Henry Ford's company. They established the uh, the, uh, the forty hour work week, the eight hour day. That that all that standard came about through the Ford's assembly line um, and his assembly line principles mm-hmm. as well were huge innovation. So all this was going on. There was there was a there was a bunch of American businessmen like that who were not with the Wall Street program. There was a lot of Wall Street types. Some of them got into railroads, and a lot of those railroads were bankrupted uh, into the ground and Jesse Jones had to deal with those people and he dealt with them very firmly. Um, He did not give them money. He did not give anything away to them. He made them earn the loan. Sometimes he would take a, he would bail out a railroad and require that hundred percent of the money be used to pay the workers because he didn't trust the owners, but the railroad was crucial to the economy, to the supply chain. So this was the, this was, the, this was the person who he was so influential in the Democratic Party, people don't understand, like half the power of the Democratic Party or more was in Texas and then some of it in California. So he organized, jo- Jesse Jones and his allies did. Um, one of his key allies was the Speaker of the House, Speaker of the Congress, John Nance Garner. And they, um, they organized in the Democratic Convention in 1932 to deny Roosevelt the, the nomination four times in a row. Whoa. Four times before finally Roosevelt, a deal, some kind of deal was struck. And after the deal, you can check this out. You can look it up on Wiki, the 1932 Democratic primary. And the, what happens after the deal struck is the Texan, John Nance Garner, who's the Speaker of the House from Texas, is becomes FDR's vice president. Jesse Jones, who was on a board, he was on a board that Herbert Hoover established for a company called Reconstruction Finance Corporation. And it was, at the time, it was only loaning money mainly to banks. And Jones was put in charge of that. He became the head of it, the director. And and then this legislation was immediately passed that gave Jones and this Reconstruction Finance Corporation the power to make loans in other parts of the economy. So the Wall Street crowd and the bankers were furious about this, and they battled to try to un- to try to get rid of Jones, or they battled against him. But they were kind of powerless at that moment. They were that they had screwed up. They had played a big part in screwing up the country. The dollar collapsed. Um, and instead of instead of just being able to foreclose on everybody, Jones re, Jones himself and the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, all the banks were reorganized and recapitalized by Jones and the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. It wasn't a government program necessarily; it was run by this Texas businessman. And it's so important that people realize that that it wasn't socialist, it wasn't marches, it wasn't unions, it wasn't the government. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like an establishment of people 
who got connected together and decided they weren't going to let this happen to the people. They had the power to do something about it. And Jones sort of was like the leader, the organizer of this in the United States. You can't read that in history books. His, his role was so significant and so important that he's been written out of the economics history books. All these things that were done that worked, that rescued the economy, that saved people's livelihoods. Um, this is something that they don't want people to know about because this is a model that we, we, we absolutely could use to fix things. And it sort of shows that um, the Federal Reserve and say the big banks as they operate, they were crippled. They played no real part in the solution. So it's like they, they're more, I, don't, I can't say for sure, I mean, I don't wanna to get too conspiratorial here, but I do think there was a deliberate policy with the, the powers that be who had the influence to just to not mention Jones in any history books at all, to not mention anything about what happened. And it's been, you'd think it's this recent of a history that they, nobody would be able to forget that or to write that out of history or to, but it's the case. Mm. So I guess what I, what I think is interesting about this today for the eco-village movement is, is the power of the loan, the power of the making of, the, of lending versus spending and doing things on this level. The businessman, I sort of took a step back and I say, what is the businessman? A, a guy like Jones, for instance, let's who say he's got this, we, we probably have some modern examples of guys like this who've made a lot of money and who are trying to do some amazing things with their you know billions of dollars. We don't have too many. I mean, we got a guy who's decided to run for president right now with, and he's a little bit like Jones, I would say, in some degree. Mm -hmm. um, somebody who's mostly made their money building managing people, working with different aspects of the real productive economy. And then we have another group, we have another type of person, you know, like a Warren Buffett type of person who's more of like an investor, more of a, we have people like George Soros who are pure speculators. So we have these different types of billionaire people out there, but I see that the, this type of person who understands business and people and managing people, there's a certain philosophy of how people really behave with money that these businessmen understand. They, all, they know it so well. They know how, to, how people are going to be, behave in situations involving money, involving a company or a nonprofit or whatever. They know how people are going to behave in terms of spending their own money. These, these people have their finger on people's pulse more than, they know more about people than people know themselves. And so, but they also understand how to write, construct deals and one of the most powerful things that I saw when I read Jesse Jones' biography is anytime something needed to get done, he could call somebody who he knew or uh, had worked with and get a name. He can get a name of somebody in Missouri. He can get a name of somebody in the state of Washington, California, say who, who there knows how to build a bridge. He's, he's about to make a loan, say, to some company uh, in the Midwest. And so this is a typical example. He said, we're loaning you so much money we need someone to sit on your board of your company and look after this investment for the American people. And you don't see that kind of thing going on now with the bailouts, the way they've been done in the last, say, 15, 20 years when Wall Street's bailed out, banks are bailed out. They just give people the money. Well, he didn't give people the money. He said, you're going to have to give us some of this equivalent amount of stock. We're going to have to put somebody on your board and we're going to give you a chance to pay back the loan and get, all, get full control of your company back. And that's the deal that they had to do. Those are the typical deals that he did when dealing with the companies, a variety of companies who maybe it was in the national interest to keep them going. So um, I'll try to tie this back into the eco-village environment. 
I think in creating a currency, I do think it, it might be best to, th to, to initiate it all on lending basis and try to tie it into the value of land. I kind of mentioned that to you. I see, I see that as kind of an important way to ground a new currency that say you, you, could start, you create some currency that it, and it's tied to the ownership of the land and if it's circulating, people should be able to use that currency to buy land in that community or people should have to pay that money back. I see a lot of this, the, the alternative currencies when they were initiated, there didn't seem to be a lot of incentive for people to use it uh, or have to use it in a certain way, which is sort of put out there. And some of the uh, trading systems seem to be sometimes like Ithaca hours. I, I, don't, I just don't see them taking hold and really being a lot, seeing a community being able to flourish. Hmm. And there's a certain power that when you have a currency, if you can, if you can create more of it and can you lend it into the economy in a sustainable way, you really have more ability to better people's lives. It's necessary to just look back and dive into the history and see just how things worked out in the past and just bring that lens into our present moment and see, okay, how do we go from here knowing what's you know, been done in the past, what's been successful, what hasn't been, and talking about creating these new currencies, alternative currencies based on or backed by, in this case, land or just about by anything valuable by that means. I think that's what has to be taken into account when creating any currency is that it has to be backed by something. Like with the dollar originally, it was backed by gold. But then, but now it's just, it's been taken off the gold standard and, and it's just been, you know, printed out of thin air. So, so currently it's not really backed by anything, but in this instance, you know, having this alternative currency backed by land, something that's extremely valuable. And especially if it's something that if there's more incentive of which everyone would benefit by proving the land and making it more ecologically productive and just a better place, then that could immediately have an effect on the currency supply. I think it's a wonderful idea, but also I'm not an economist. It takes me a bit of energy, mental power to wrap my mind around these concepts and really understand the mechanics and the economics here. But it, it sounds like a great idea. I think... The great need for a lot of people there's a lot of good-hearted people who spiritually ethically they they have not become wealthy they they could not participate in all the the stuff they saw going on in the economy they knew something was wrong with it those are a lot of people out there right now they have the energy the time and so there's a quite, quite a bit of young people too who are looking to live in an intentional community or in a way that's more meaningful economically. And so there's land. And just in terms of what's already been going on with land and all the basics and how people invest in it and so forth, if those people can be brought, those people who want to be on a piece of land and be economically independent, sustainable with energy and food and so forth, there's people who want to do that work. And if they do that work on a piece of land, that land becomes more valuable. It's, and so one of the holdups right now is, do we have to get a loan to do that? I think we're gonna have a harder time now with this, what's about to come down with people getting loans. I think there's a lot of people with land right now who would like it to be developed and they don't have the money to do it. I think there's a lot of people who want to live on the land who don't have the money to buy it. I think there's just needs to, I think there's a, there's needs that can be creatively met. Creative deals can be made. They're done the right way with someone who understands real estate, understands how to make, how to structure deals legally and how to, 
I th and I think that's one of the, I think that is something a contentional community could benefit from right now is having some people to advise on making these deals and making them work, writing contracts, uh, because I feel like there's so much that doesn't happen because people don't know how to do it or because the deals go bad. It was word. It was just based on somebody's word. I typically hear the story of people who tried to go on an owner's land and help them through a barter or trade or something and had a difficult time with the owner and then they had to walk away and mm. to, to really prosper right now and to live the certain way, a lot of energy has to be put into a piece of land for water, for energy. And so there's this huge investment a person has to make the person coming onto the land as well, as well as the owner you have to, to, before you can live there. So it's like upfront, it's like you have to invest so much and it, it, it won't work to do that on a barter situation very well. A person is going to have to, it's like they're putting in two or three years of rent right away in the first three months to make a place livable, to build a structure, to build a shed, to do wells, to do uh, solar. It just takes a lot of time to really understand and learn the land. Like Bill Molson, the founder of Permaculture, always recommends, you know, you have to see the land in every single day of the year before building anything permanent or just to observe it in all the seasons before knowing exactly what to do with it. It, it takes some time. And I don't know enough about permaculture, but just I'm starting to gather it's pretty important in terms of really being, getting a lot out of a piece of land, the density of the land, getting more out of it and doing it sustainably. But yeah, so there's, I, I imagine it takes a while to set up the permaculture system, right? How, how long does it take to set up a real good permaculture system on a, on a, on a land, in your opinion? A lifetime. <laughs> oh, a lifetime. It's, and it's an ever-evolving ever process. It's just like the flowering of a flower, I guess. But all I could say is just on a different time wave versus where we're living in now, where everything's very quick, fast, got to do it now, and everything's by the day, by the hour. But permaculture is a whole other wavelength of being or just looking at things and so but i think what it all points to is even if you're not doing permaculture or you are um my sense is the land you have to have the control the option to buy the land or the outright ownership of the land to be able to put that kind of work in to have it make sense to have it it's too much risk otherwise it's it's too much loss to the parties who are doing the work and putting mm -hmm. the time and money in so getting control of the land and having a plan to keep control and to put these improvements in and to benefit from the improvements of the equity could be done. I don't, I haven't done it myself. I don't think I've really seen it done the right way, but I think all the ingredients to make, to do it already exist. All the, the working models exist on different, in different levels. And it's just a matter of adding them together. The, the new part of it would be the currency. I think that would be the the issue is is creating a new currency. So, but I see when I read this book, the online book ebook you sent me. You know, um, one of the possibilities I thought about. There's many possibilities I think for people in terms of how they're going to have an economy on their on their individual piece of land. Or, I think intentional community is a lot more of a bigger play to get going. I, I think you have to have a lot more money to do it. So. It might be people who are starting this could try to just get into a piece of land somehow with a down payment, get an option on the land. And I was thinking right now, like if people don't have income, what could they possibly do? And I don't know all the legalities of this, but when I read the Gaia story from the story from the Gaia book, one of it was what I was talking about. 
just how it should be important to take care of the elderly. You know, it's just, there's mm -hmm. a lot, a lot of times elderly are just put in the homes and they're put there and nobody visits them. And, and they thought, well, it'd be great if we as a community would be able to, they could live their rest of their life out there and they're in a community. And I thought about this for a second. I'm thinking, well, in the United States, we have a lot of elderly people or retired people. Some of them have the money and they have their own home. Some of them don't, but they have these social security checks and they have some income. And I did was thinking that that might be an interesting tack to take for some younger people who to say a piece of property has two houses to try to use maybe one of them to have a group of maybe a few seen uh, retired people who have that fixed income, their income could kind of be used to, for, to pay for the services of the younger people who are going to manage the property, do a lot of work, help take care of them. It seems like it could be a good match. 100%. It's crazy that you mentioned that because I've just been, found myself thinking about this idea too. A couple months back, we got the biggest generation all retiring in their peak retirement now. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of young people struggling to get a land access or just finding meaningful work. And like you said, I think this is the perfect marriage of the two worlds of creating these new settlements, communities, but maybe it has to take the form of like a nursing home to call it that if you wanted to call it anything and have, I don't know, I, to me, it seems like a wonderful idea. It, it, I don't know exactly how the structure needs to be done. I know with nursing homes, it could be like more bureaucratic red tape. You have to deal with the state or deal with other agencies and it could be difficult. But it, it, does, it, just, it does seem to me if it's just a retired person who's of sane, sound mind, who's saying, this is where I want to live. I, this would be great. And they get, to be, they get to bring their experience and their wisdom. They don't probably have the energy to go bust their back in a garden or doing climbing ladders up to, to put up solar panels or anything. But their wisdom could be important for the young people. And their, their fixed incomes, for some of these people, they don't have enough money to, to buy a place themselves. But when there's three or four of these fixed income retired people, you're talking about almost enough money to, to make the mortgage payment to qualify for a loan. So I kind of feel like, I don't know, I haven't done the numbers. I don't know how many people, if it would take five or six people with social security to be able to get a piece of land in a rural area, an affordable rural area. But somehow I think looking at that avenue would be a good way to go for young people. I don't, and I, I kind of feel like there probably needs to be a a middle, an institution, a nonprofit that's set up to specifically help people, even if this wasn't their exact plan with, with, with bring, having an elderly community on the property or a retired community, I should say. Somehow just to structure these deals and help make the land transition happen, get help get the land acquired to help write contracts, to review contracts, mm -hmm. to help guide people through this. I think, I think there's a specialization that's needed. And I think it's, probably important to set up such an institution or such a nonprofit to help people start doing this. Cause I think a lot of people need to do this. And what would you say would be the ideal profile of whoever being in charge of such a new lending institution in this setting, who would be the right fit for managing this? I'm kind of the most interesting example. I, of course, is the Jesse Jones example. And they, there's an upside and a downside to having one powerful person in charge, but definitely we should have a person who's very knowledgeable 
usually you'd have want someone who's knowledgeable about the region, but we want so you want someone who's really knowledgeable about doing contracts with land, doing land development, and someone who has the the heart or the passion to help other people make their money. Maybe somebody who's already made their money, somebody who doesn't need to make money, and someone who and there is a lot of business people out there like this. They're now retired and they feel like they've got this wisdom of how to accumulate money in a moral way, in an ethical way, mm. and help people at the same time. So they, they, these people have navigated the politics, navigated the, the, the zonings issues, the contracts, the political aspects, uh, managing people, working with construction crews. They've dealt with all this stuff. And it's not that easy to, to do all that and, and always come out and make a buck and come out and, and succeed. So they have that knowledge, and that's a knowledge and experience that definitely needs to be on the on a board or in terms of having who's going to advise people and looking over these deals and help make them work. You want someone with that track record who has that kind of moral qualification as well. And trying um, to foresee potential disasters to avoid, what would you see as the worst scenario? Like what bad could happen by going this way? Like if people went this route versus going, trying to just do it on their own or do it through the existing system? Yeah. Like with this particular model of, of having a lending institution with, let's say, somebody with a lot of capital. Oh, I wasn't really saying that necessarily. Well, I wasn't thinking that we would depend on a rich person or this, this institution would depend on a rich person. I was sort of thinking... Yeah, a pool of people, just an equal share of resources, I guess. Like a, kind of a pooling, in I other think, words? Well, there was, there's two things, I think. One thing is I think there should be this nonprofit institution that serves people who are trying to set up these communities or establish smaller versions for themselves where they're living sustainably on a piece of land, whatever it is. Okay. There should be an institution that helps people navigate the process and helps utilize the most resources possible to get themselves on a piece of land and to start making that land productive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like the mission is to help as many people as possible get on land it's not to control those people it's to help establish sure. okay. a lot of individual decentralized ownership and another part of that is a lot of deals are going to have to be made on a creative basis to make this transition uh, to create these to realize the opportunities so i think helping people make those deals not everyone's going to be able to become an expert on on in real estate and the contracts and doing land i mean to have that as a resource would be huge, I think, for most people. People can't be everything, like we were just talking about earlier in the Plato's Republic and the division of labor. You can't be an expert in everything. It just bogs your mental resources down. The thing I notice about all the successful people like Jesse Jones or can take any billionaire is they have a, a Rolodex of people that they call, mm-hmm. that they've been working with for years. They've developed these connections and they know these experts in law or engineering or farming, make a call and get in touch with someone and and just take their word for it. And there's an art to that as well. Mm. So that's what these people have. And that's how they become successful. They didn't come successful by by necessarily always mastering every single aspect of knowledge base or field of knowledge that's in their world of business. It's too hard to do. So it'd be important for this board to be an arbitrator. That's what I'm thinking is important because if you go out on your own and things go bad, like you were talking about what happens when things go bad, you end up in in the mainstream legal system. You end up in the court. I think it'd be important to have this board that we set up 
help write the contracts. It's, I think people should submit, submit their contracts to this board and have sort of like a plan B. What do they do if it falls, if the deal falls apart, how do they disengage? And if they can't work things out and they don't want to go to our the main courts, the, the public courts and everything, to have this institution be able to arbitrate the differences and settle things so that it doesn't cost people everything with lawyers and a fair mm -hmm. settlement as possible can be done. I mean, I personally would feel better about that myself if I had to go into some deals and I'm putting all my sweat equity into something. And I think owners might feel the same as well. Nobody wants to get have to go through the legal system as it exists today and burn up all their money and-, and it Sounds like a nightmare. So I think those two things together is important. Now, the third possibility with this nonprofit becomes the ability to, to, to do some alternative currency, to, to help facilitate the alternative currency. So that's another aspect that I think might be part of it. Oh, man. So, what, so okay, so we've touched upon, let's just say, foundations, like Plato's Republic. We've explored the past of characters like Jesse Jones handling all this uh, disaster collapse in, during the Great Depression. And now we're exploring the possibilities in light of all that in our current day now with alternative currencies, with this lending institutions of just making the transition from where we are now to this potential world of a better place. And so, man, it's just a lot to take in. There's a lot, a lot of moving parts and um, there's so many rabbit holes. So for somebody, I guess, who's not economically versed or educated, I don't know what would be a good action step for somebody, let's, you know, who, let's say some someone, let's say, who's 25 years old, just doing work exchanges around the world that has nothing saved up but dreams of being long-term, partial ownership, full ownership, whatever, on the land and being there and settling roots. What could this person do now? Or what could we all do? I don't know. You know, we could all pull in and create these lending institutions and, and get something together started. But let's say like just maybe micro actions too. Like what could we do together individually with micro actions we could take? Yeah. That's a good I, question. I think because there's this, this huge jump from working on someone else's land to having your own land. A lot of times, you know, you need more reliable income or you need a lot of capital. And that whole process of chasing that could just divert you from living on your path. If the ends they're trying to achieve can be done consistent with the means that they're living right in the moment every day so that they don't have to make a radical change, like somehow what they're doing with their the way they're working, living like the way you said, somehow they could just keep doing the same thing, but, but it end up being having some land ownership out of it, ended up having more benefit for themselves. And these people should benefit. That's one of the reasons I think my motivation to do this is, is I see these people working so hard in the world right now, not just the, the individual who's trying to make the sustainable community, but so many people are working so hard and they're not getting ahead. They're not even able to own a piece of land for themselves. They're not even able to have a, a quality of life when they retire. This is the way, this is what's wrong about the economic model. I think we all know this now. And I think it's, I think it's gonna be kind of challenging for people. This is a, I think this is the biggest challenge for people to now start to come together and start to trust one another and start to, to become tied to one another a little bit more inter, interdependently in terms of, if you're going to get a piece of land or you're going to have to be connected to somebody else in a contract or depending on someone else to work as hard as you do 
or to pull their end, meet their end of the bargain. So I guess that's one part right now is, you know, if you've worked with people before and you have a good working relationship, establish that as a team, usually you could carry that through into any project, no matter what you do. I think knowing who you work well with and starting there is a good, might be one place to start. Totally. Yeah. These people that you speak of, if there are, if there are people out there like that, they probably already have worked with other people on farms that they know like this, right? That, Hey, I, I remember this person, I work with them on this, this far, this sustainable farm or this project. And we got along, you know, they might be able to reach out to one of those people now and say, Hey, we don't have the money in place, but we want to pull together a little team of people with some diverse skills and try to get on a piece of land. And we don't know exactly how yet. And so it's, I think just forming the, um, having the intention and, and having a little team of people that you've worked with before that you know you can work with. Does that seem like a good start? Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I feel like maybe a lot of people just have a hard time really wanting to be that interdependent on a group of people. I feel like we've gotten so used to our individualism. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like a lot of people I talk with or that I know too are really turned off by the idea of like when they hear of eco village or commune, they're like, oh my God, no, I'd never want to. <laughs> I think currently there's a lot of like just distaste of this thing or misconception of what this could look like. You know, I think maybe a lot of people have a bad picture in their minds now and kind of have a hard time to see maybe what the potential is. And so then I think at this point, it will be branching more into the discussion of like social coexistence and this whole social dimension, which branches off from the economic dimension. How can we get there? How can we make it happen? And, and then how can we maintain this in existence? And then the actual way from that point is just, okay, how can we live together now? Which is all about like getting to the emotional maturity of things and the whole other dimension of just mastery to know how to deal with, I don't know. If I'm making any sense with that, you, but uh, you are, and th this is an area we didn't we didn't talk about yet. And I had I really had a lot of things I wanted to say about this. So one of the things we actually talked about it on the phone before the, uh, when I called you a little bit. Well, I I think that the, the traditional eco village model that's been more communal and so forth. Yeah, there's something flawed about that, uh, and there's something flawed, of course, about the model and society where the people who are working the hardest and being the most ethical aren't, you know, the wealthiest, and the people who are the most unethical and doing things, uh, not working very hard themselves, are becoming super wealthy in some cases. So there's something wrong with that. And so when we we talk about this need to try to come together, well, one of the things I thought ought to be done differently in these projects, these development projects that I'm talking about. If, if it can be done this way, um, is people getting rewarded for the time and energy they put in, maybe in terms of a stock so if, or, or shares. So if we take a project to develop a piece of land and we're going to develop solar and we're going to develop a house and it's going to create so much value on the land, the labor is worth something. I think trying to do things evenly and everyone work the same amount is not a good formula. I think it'd be better to maybe have someone who's more like a project manager and in, and for every day a person works for every hour, they should get something more. They should get more shares in the project. If a person doesn't, if a person only wants to work two days a week, then they should get, you know, equivalent of the two day shares. And the person who spends five hours or five days, that much more shares because they work that much more. And I don't think that's wrong. 
some people don't need to work five days. Some people want to work the full, a full five days. Some people have other job to do. So I think there's a way to kind of make this equitable and for people to go into a project. And uh, maybe at first it's, it could be about developing projects like this, developing land and getting shares and having a share of the ownership, having some equity, and then immediately going to another piece of land and repeating the process where they get to do something they already learned how to do very well and repeat that. And it's almost like this assembly line principle of Henry Ford when he made the cars and made them so efficiently and made them so affordably. If people could take their skills and do them on multiple properties, like inquire enough, sh enough shares after developing four or five properties, they might have enough shares if there's a corporation on top of this that can help do the exchanges, they might be able to exchange their shares for their own piece of property so they don't have to live communally. Oh, I see. Interesting. So if this is set up in a certain way where we go into it as everyone's, a, everyone's sort of a, an, an owner, a partial owner in this, this corporation that's set up to develop land, and this person, one person becomes really good at permaculture, one person becomes maybe one person is going to use a bulldozer and they're going to do the roads and level ground to build houses and so forth. And so maybe this corporation actually owns a bulldozer and then maybe another person's expert with solar, maybe another person's expert with building workshops. And some people are going to work on the house. Some people are part of that housing, have specialty in the housing. So if you had a team of people, you might be able to have, I don't know how many it takes, 10, 20 to go from one property and fully develop it. And if the corporation can kind of control it and own it, now that's the key thing. Can, can you get enough capital in the beginning to outright own the land or at least a maybe a couple pieces of land? And then once you develop this piece of land and make it livable, people could come in there and pay rent. Some of the people who've been working on the land and they've acquired these shares may be able to just use their shares to pay rent to live on the properties that are developed. So that's kind of what I was thinking about the currency model there's a way to sort of translate the equity that people create, the new wealth into the ability to pay for things, to trade with one another. Mm. And if the land can't be acquired right away, there is possibility of finding land that people own and they're going to have to agree to give up control of the land and take shares. And there's going to be a little project uh, for that property and shares are going to be given out to the workers based on all the new wealth that's added, all the new work that's done. And in the end, maybe the property can be sold or maybe there's some way to hold on to it and have people live there to finance it some other way. But one thing is when you start with a piece of land, there's, you know, it's worth a certain value. When these people come in, if people can come in and the material costs are there, a capital is there to, to build things and create things. I mean, this land is probably going to double in value. So there's so much value to be created. There's so many people who've become very wealthy in this country with real estate development. But having your own land is sort of the key to freedom and independence, I think, in a lot of ways. So in the end, I've seen HOAs and I've seen possibilities that people could try to aim for something bigger with a community. But I think it's kind of hard to start off right away like that. I think it'd be hard to do it and, and set and have the intention come through with the currency and everything. Do you think, unfortunately, that would have to come or the path there would be sparked by massive pain by like this crisis, for example, if it gets very bad, like the Great Depression or even worse, you think it ultimately would come to that point for people to really think, okay, 
let's get serious now. <laughs> well, all I think, I think there's, that's important. And I think a lot of people have been ready. I think there's a, there's this, I don't want to say how many people, but maybe it's 1%, maybe it's 5% of the population has been ready to do this for the last two decades. Yeah. Now there's a lot more people who are ready to do this now. A lot more people will, will feel forced to do something because of the calamity that we're about to, we are already begun to experience. It's only going to get worse. And they will get forced into doing something that's probably not going to work. That's the sad part of it. The reality is that people are going to like go onto somebody else's land, for instance, and try to make a deal work. And they're going to eventually boot it off and they're going to be having nothing. And this is going to, it's going to be so much worse in an economy to have a deal go bad where you've put a lot of energy in and say built a house and helped someone build water and a garden and permaculture and to have to be kicked off someone's property after that, after you've put all that investment in. That's the, that's what I think. That's what I could foresee happen is a lot of the mistakes that have already been made. People aren't going to get to benefit from those. And I think if, an, if we, by us getting this idea out now, this is so good that people who are, who are going to feel forced into the situation, if they're, if they're, these ideas are somehow percolating, I think they're going to seriously look at this. They're going to seriously think about this and people who have, a lot of the skills I've been talking about, business skills, development, land development skills, who've been part of the mainstream economy. Well, now that that mainstream, mainstream economy is disintegrating, they may look at what we're saying too. They may look at some of these ideas and look at how they could start trying to fit it into the models we're talking about. So I, I, think, I think it's about people need to be reached. People need access to what we're talking about and they need to, uh, some, some people need to get together who have some capital and have some business leadership ability, that would be the best possible scenario right now to take the ideas we're talking about and to say, we're going to do this, these kinds of deals and we're going to reward people with equity. We're not going to take everything. We're not going to just have people work and get nothing. We're going to make this real where people are going to get to own their own land at the end of this. So I think that would be more ideal, but I think people like you were talking about what can the average person do who's maybe already working on a farm and has some skills and wants to do this and they know a few people. Okay. I, I wish I had a reference for them right now. I wish I already knew some people with the business skills and the deal-making skills who want to do this. Mm. So I, I kind of feel like it might be useful for because I know the need is there. It might be useful to set up, try to set up the nonprofit and to try to bring somebody in and start to try to bring people together, bring together the working type of people. There may be an investor type of person. There may be yeah. elderly type of people who are ready to, to come on board. Maybe this institution can start by sort of connecting people and, and try to connect them with a, a deal maker who can help them craft a deal and help them do a project and help guide it. Yeah, and that's been one of the biggest motivations too for creating uh, this podcast, this platform, is to have that manual of, let's say, best practices just to get going on the right foot from the get-go instead of you know fumbling around trying to build a life raft when the ship is already sunk. You know, <laughs> I don't know, but I think we could all feel it. We could all agree that now's the time, and we got to get acting, and we got to start getting on this now. <laughs> It is very urgent. There's no question. And you know, it's, it's, I've been very frustrated myself wanting to do more. I've kind of been feeling this for at least a decade or two. And I think that's important to say too, just so people are wondering, is this going to, is this thing going to turn around in the next 
month or two and go back to any sense of normal like it was before. And I'm saying emphatically, there's no way. I've been watching this closely for last couple of decades. I agree. And I can just say, I'll, and I could, I'll try to be real brief if people want to know. One thing is our trade deficit. People have been saying for a while, the experts saying, oh, trade deficits don't matter. And then they said the government deficit doesn't matter. And they say, oh, no, you don't need to produce things. You don't need to build things. We don't need to write the software here. We could just do all that around the world. So people, these economists and people who have been put forward as the experts have been telling American people this. The American people are just, you know, they want you just to sit there and nod your head and go, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. We don't need to work. We don't need to build things. We can run a trade deficit. We can pay for things with money we don't have. And now we're at the point where, unfortunately, like I said, the, the people who have benefited from all this globalization who don't have the goodness of mankind, the, the, the benefit of mankind in their intentions, they have been massively bailed out again. And they have all this money right now. And they're not going to use it to help people. They never, it's historically, this class of people has never done this in history. And they're just waiting for the economy to hit that, to go to go really bad, uh, they're ready for when things get like they were in the Great Depression, like they're they're happening right now, and they're they're going to swoop in, and they're it's going to be like vultures swooping in, like sharks in in the water. It's not going to be um, just waiting for the massive deflation to come in, and, and yeah, and while everyone's being bankrupt. And politically, what's being rolled out? I know we don't want to get too political on this subject, but. The other reason I believe this is is not is this permanent state we've just entered into is I think what we're really just witnessing right now is how much power that it's mainly the pharmaceutical companies in the world have globally over every government and that they could just bring everybody to their knees. I mean, ultimately, they have this power over the medical system to change the rules, to, to get governments to shut down. They are that influential to make people say, take a vaccine or you know, to, to keep us, the medical system working a certain way. And, you know, there was also this talk of 5G and the rollout of 5G, and there's going to be so much going on with surveillance. So on so many levels right now, because of the shutdown and the, you can clearly see with the economic damage that they're doing to people, it's so calculated. This is intentional. And I have seen, I've been studying history for a long time. And when you start something like this, you don't roll it back. Nobody takes away this much freedom and rolls something out like this and just changes it the next day. So I, I don't know if it, that would require too much of a discussion. Maybe you should just, your opinion and my opinion is good enough to say, this is going to be a permanent state. There is something else I wanted to say along these lines. Please. Which is, I believe this could potentially go on for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, this new paradigm that we're in. And it's really... What's going to happen if people haven't got a clue on this yet is we're going to be divided, sort of. There's going to be a dividing line through our world now. And you're going to have to become part of the system so much more than ever before to have a job. To get it, to keep your jobs, I think we're going to have to go through forced vaccinations. Most people to keep their jobs, whatever this new vaccine is, um, mm. it's probably going to be something regular. We're going to have to agree to having 5G everywhere and having a surveillance, all the surveillance that goes along with it. We're going to have to agree to globalization, but the markets are, have become so controlled that it's almost like 
you have to agree to all this control and give up all your freedom, economic freedom, political freedom, health freedom. You have to give all this up in order to get that government job or to get that government handout or to to be involved in the system. So I think we have a, we're going to need to have a completely parallel economic system, a completely parallel health system, and a completely parallel educational system because. You can't even send your kids to school anymore without the vaccinations as well. But I just, I think there's so much control coming out now, economic, political, medical, all of it. I've never seen anything like this in history. And I don't want to be totally pessimistic. I just think now more than ever, we need to have the parallel system. We need to make it real. We need to give it life. We need to breathe life into it. I think a lot of people, I see so many people are ready to do it. Everybody in their gut. I see so many people, they know it. And even if they don't know it now, slowly as things unfold, they're going to see intuitively the need to create their own garden or they see the economy disintegrating. All, everything they thought was stable is becoming unstable. So I, I, I think what we're talking about is a parallel system. I think there's political forces that are going to try to f- keep people in the system as it is, even though it's collapsing. <laughs> And we have the opportunity to create the parallel system that's, and to bring lots of people into it if we can make it work. And I think there's going to be a clash. We're just, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be like, we're just going to create this community and people are going to leave you alone. I don't think, even if you're successful within eco-villages and getting yourself sort of liberated financially from things that you feel are unsustainable or corrupt, I think we're going to have to defend what we create. I think people are going to have to do that as well. So is that okay to say that? Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and to be able to just look at the beast in his eyes, you know, and to continue to press forward. I feel like we're at that part of the story of the hero's journey where we're in the underworld facing off the beast and, and then going back into the light and creating that light or whatever. But it's important to not ignore this, all this with what you just said, even with this mass of surveillance and, and, and taking off content that mentions these controversial or supposedly controversial subjects or whatever, we got to continue pressing on forward and uh, stare the beast in the, in the face and, and do and what so, we can. And some part of it, we're certain to have to keep our feet in both worlds. A lot of us are going to have to manage this. I just think it's going to become harder and harder to deal with the corruption in the world, to deal with the financial collapse, to deal with all these things and not create a new system. If we just, if we, if we somehow just keep trying to fix the broken part of it or accept the broken system as it is, we're going to just find it harder and harder to make our individual lives work for kids to have a future. And I think the the young people right now have really got the, we got to use one, can we use one cuss word? They got a really shitty deal, man, right now. They got no jobs, most of the jobs, I can't believe how many aspects of the economy right now where we're importing people to do the work from truck drivers to software engineers to nurses. I mean, the ruling class of the United States does not want its people to have a high middle class standard of living anymore. This is what's about to come to an end. They want to keep driving everybody's wages down around the world. And they're sort of at the point where if they could make everybody accept the money system the way that is, they can just keep reducing people's standard of living down to, down to zil, down to nothing almost. And I think that's, um, 
that's kind of what we're trying. That's what we're talking about changing here is we're trying to preserve that light, that freedom, that opportunity for people to live in this, in this, this beautiful way, in this sustainable way, but also in a way that's rewarding. That's kind of what's at stake. And I think like this whole, this whole planet right now, if is at stake the future it's very hard when you fall down into certain levels of control if you look at the various countries who've really descended deeply and done mass genocides or mm-hmm. gone into deep economic declines they it's don't a cascading effect it's hard for people to come back up from that it's hard for people to come together and bring their and 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 change something and get any get freedom back when it's lost so We've come a long way as human race up till now. We have all the potentials. We have the internet can be worked to our advantage. The, t- the modern technology we could use to ma- do stuff with farming that we could never do 100 or 200, 300 years ago. Individual people, a few individual people can actually run a sustainable farm with the technologies that we have now. We have the ability to communicate with one another, share ideas quickly. We have the ability to create a new digital currency. So it's like we have all the potentials there. So it's like at the same time we have all this potential downside, we have all this potential upside. 100%. Now we're at the crossroads. Which way are we going to turn? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm interested to I don't know what the reach is on this, um, but I'm really glad that we're having the discussion. And I'm glad that you're out there with the podcast because if you weren't out there with the podcast, we couldn't have gotten all these ideas out and hopefully it inspires people. And hopefully it's like the seeds, you know, people say I could use that idea. Oh, for sure. That that makes sense. For sure. So I got to give you a lot of credit for, for making this your, your hobby and your passion and for studying all the, the systems you've studied around the world. Cause I know we didn't even talk about that. There's probably a lot of examples you've talked about in your podcast and we just have limited time here. Uh, in this discussion, but it was good because I think you let me talk about a lot of things that people have probably never heard before to like whoever your audience is, they've probably never been exposed to this, these types of ways of looking at eco village economies. Yeah, 100%. It's a dimension that doesn't get talked enough about. And uh, I get caught up on this too of, you know, I naturally fascinated by ecological systems and on the physical plane, but this is perhaps just as important, if not more important at this point. So I'm glad to have you on and to share your wisdom on this. It's been great. We really, really have to do this again. Definitely, definitely, yeah. All right, well, that's our conversation with Jeff and I. And let us know what you think. Please give me all the ideas you have. Do you agree? Do you disagree? How do you see it? Do you have any insights you would like to share? Let me know at ecovillagelibrary at gmail.com or visit ecovillagelibrary.org. Visit the website and um, please, please, please let me know what you think. And, you know, this, this dialogue only evolves when more and more streams of consciousness are directed towards it and directed towards creating a solution, creating a strategy forward. But anywho, that's all, folks. See you to next time. Ciao, ciao. Much love.